All right, here we are. First thing in order, of course, is a welcome. Good to see everybody here. Welcome to the new year. This is our first worship opportunity of the new year, January 2nd. And uh, I have another announcement I have to make, but I just want to make sure uh, that it's done correctly because it's not a, uh, anything about what's going on in the church. Just This is for all of you special people out there. This today is Introvert Day. All parties have been canceled, so I'm sorry to announce that, but it has to be done. Uh, it's just the way things are. Traditionally, for the past several years, on the first Sunday of January, uh, I've been up here kind of doing a review of the year, of the year before, that went before us. And it served a purpose, I think, a few years ago. But the last couple of years have been kind of the same, you know? And there's not a lot to report, uh, and it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is, and this is the time that we're living in. Um, I can tell you one thing that I've noticed this year that I think we all probably will agree on, and that is that we're, uh, we're tired, we're stressed. We've, uh, we feel like we're, We've been through something, and we're ready to dis discover a new normal, a, a something that is easier to be in. But that's not where we are. That's not where we are. So instead of kind of looking back, let's look ahead. Let's look ahead a little bit. Um, we had an opportunity this last year to gather more often in the building than we have in the year before. That's good. But this year, let's make a real effort to participate in some of the classes, the Sunday school classes, Wednesday night classes. Uh, there's a, there are prayer groups going on. That have been going on for many, many years now, five years at least. Uh, and there's women's Bible classes that are taking place. These are all good things to do. And they're part of being a healthy Christian because being with other people and being encouraged and hearing the Word of God in an environment that is not necessarily in an auditorium situation is very healthy for all of us. And that, to me, is an important thing right now. Uh, this coming year, let's talk about that a little bit. I hope that we make an effort to listen to God better than we have in the past. I hope that we uh, ponder the Bible words the words that we received in Scripture, and seek out the wisdom that our hearts can be moved in the right direction at the right time, be ready to change. I pray that when we talk to one another that we will hear better, that we will not just be thinking about what I could say next, but try to hear what people are saying. Try to listen. And that may be important not to offer advice because sometimes all we need is to be heard. I hope this coming year that we also take this opportunity to celebrate those things that happen that are wonderful. Those events that we haven't celebrated in the past because we weren't sure. Let's take time and do that. Let's enjoy the blessing that God has given to us and acknowledge that. 
And it's a good thing. There are victories that have taken place. There are lives that have been changed over the past several years, and it's good, and we need to be happy about that. We need to seek those things that are peaceful. It's easy to find turmoil. It's easy to live in chaos. That is natural in our world. But to seek peace and to find that place is a wonderful thing. That's a gift. And I hope that we each find the courage this coming year to think deeply about our faith, what it means to us, and how to talk to to others about it. If we keep what we have inside, then we are withholding something precious. The fact that God loves us is amazing. And he knows all the things we've done. And he still loves us. And somehow we need to allow that to show up to be part of our lives and to say it to others. I hope that can happen this coming year. So what are we going to do this morning? I've got a few minutes. I'm going to take you through a little journey, if you will. We're going to look at Paul's letter to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. I don't recall hearing a sermon based on this, but I've heard a lot of sermons, and it's very possible that I've just forgotten. But here's the story. Paul's letter to Titus is tucked in between Timothy and Philemon. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible was organized, the New Testament especially, in a, in a certain way. Whoever had the most writings got to be first after the Gospels, okay? Whoever had the most writings, and that was, of course, And then whoever had the second most was next and third and on. Within those categories, the order was this way. Whoever had the most words in the letter got to be first. And whoever was second and third and fourth. And here we are at the end of Paul's letters. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Philemon is the shortest, so that makes Titus the second shortest. Three chapters. Three chapters. First chapter is real simple. It's an introduction. And he says, Titus, I've given you two things to do. And we'll talk about those. Chapter two paints a picture of what the Christian household should look like. How those who are bond servants should act. And then why? And in chapter 3, Paul steps back and he says, Look, because of all that I've told you already, certain things should happen, not to you individually, but certain things should happen that reflect Christianity in your culture and in your place. And then he closes out the book. Short, short book, simple book, but there's a lot of things in there. And if we had time and if you guys had the patience, we would go through it verse by verse. But I know you don't, and I don't want to. Instead, we're going to read through it. It won't take very long. 
So if you have a Bible with you, that'd be great. If you don't have one, you're going to hear it just the way many people in the house churches on the island of Crete might have heard it, except for translated into a different language. But that's not important. Let's read Titus, starting from the beginning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. Very long opening sentence. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one life, wife, and his children and believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good word, works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, an so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. 
They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works by, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justifi justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Short letter. Roughly six-minute read. Let's have a prayer. We thank you, Lord God, for the word that you've given to us, for the blessing of Scripture, for the understanding that we gain by studying, thinking, ruminating on these things. We ask you now this morning to enlighten us, Father. Help us to see better, to see more clearly, to see in love and in kindness the things that we can take carry with us throughout this day. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> simple letter, and in order to talk about it a little bit, I've given it a title, Hope in Harrowing Times. This is what Paul is offering to Titus. 
in harrowing times. Is he really living in harrowing times? Well, you have to imagine what it would have been like sometime 62 to 64 BC when the letter is written. Um, imagine what it was like to have heard and, and been in the situation that Titus was in. Anytime we look at an ancient letter well out of our own time, we need to ask a lot of questions because we divert ourselves from the meaning of the letter if we don't. So what are the questions we want to ask? We want to ask the questions like, uh, what's happening? When was it happening? How did it happen? Who was involved? Who wrote it? Where did it take place? These are all questions that are relevant to our understanding of the texts that we read, the ancient Greek texts that have been translated for us. In short, we want to know the context of the letter. What questions are being asked? What journey is the letter writer taking us on and where are we going? And the first thing we can do is we can ask the simple question, who is this guy Titus anyway, right? Who is it? Well, if we look back in the passage of the letter itself, it tells us a little bit. We read that Titus is my true child in a common faith, verse 4, the first chapter. So he is dear to Paul. There are a couple of other locations where his... Uh, name shows up. 2 Corinthians 8.23, Titus is considered a trusted co-worker of Paul's. Very important as well. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, after being on the road for 14 years, Paul and Barnabas decide to bring Titus with them as they head back to Jerusalem. And they're going back there with the idea that they're going to have a verification from the leaders in Jerusalem that what they're preaching to the Gentiles is correct. And so we know that Titus is a trusted co-worker if he is going with Paul and Barnabas all the way back to Jerusalem. So why does Paul need to encourage this guy anyway? I mean, he left him at this place. We're told that he left him in Crete. So let's talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> Crete is the island here in the middle of the Great Sea or the Mediterranean, if you will, just off Greece. And it's a group of islands, actually. But it seems that uh, Titus was left on the big island and he had some specific things going on. The harbors in Crete were very good for getting access to all kinds of other places. So you had a lot of people passing through there all the time and a wide variety and type of people passing through. So it was a very busy population-wise location. Uh, Crete also had a reputation. <coughs> the people of Crete were famous for being mercenaries and they would always work for the highest bidder. 
I don't know if you are familiar with the idea of being a mercenary, but basically you do whatever someone tells you to do for the amount of money you can get. Usually it's brutal and usually it's tough. Therefore, the islands that they worked out of were considered relatively unsafe. So Titus is not being brought into a nice, gentle location with lots of happy, wonderful people. They were plagued by violence, and they were known for being full, exceedingly full of sexual corruption. It's going to be tough for Titus. But what Paul does is he leaves an experienced Christian Greek man on that island to, to finish up some work. We know that he's Greek because in the Galatians passage, we are told that Titus is an uncircumcised Greek Christian. So he is, as one commentator put it, tough Titus being given an assignment, difficult assignment. So what is the question that Paul is answering in this letter to Titus? Well, it seems Titus has somehow communicated to him that the situation here is dire, that it's not gonna be a simple, I can fix this in a day or two. I need advice. What am I supposed to do? And Paul tells him very, very well, very quickly, right away in the letter, he says, you've got a job. Your job is to appoint elders. You'll notice how, where he appoints them. He doesn't appoint an elder or a group of elders for Crete. He says, in every town or in every city, wherever there's a church, wherever people meet, wherever groups meet, there is to be oversight by a group of elders. And then he lists qualities of these elders. Now, we've seen these lists before. Paul is very consistent. He puts out pretty much the same qualifications for people that are working, especially for overseers, elders. And so there's nothing unusual about that. So the first task is to appoint the elders. The second task is a little bit different. And he doesn't waste time talking uh, too much about that either. Not only is he to appoint elders, but we'll read about this in verse 9. He says, The elders themselves must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He wants people who are able to teach. Okay? And the word, uh, we look at this and we say, well, they're trustworthy with the word. Okay, that makes sense. But what is this sound doctrine stuff? Healthy teaching would be another way to say this. They need to be able to speak healthy biblical teaching to other people and be able to rebuke. And we don't use the word rebuke a lot. Usually I hear that in other Christian to Christian talk, if you're going to hear that, I'm going to rebuke you. Yeah, whatever. Uh, we don't do that, okay, for the most part. But really, 
Rebuke is just to talk down, to tell them to stop, to say, don't do that anymore. I'm going to contradict you and I'm going to supersede what you think should be said. Um, C.S. Lewis made this comment. And I think this is a good point to make about our willingness to teach other people sound doctrine. Each of us has his individual emphasis. Each holds, in addition to the faith, many opinions which seem to him to be consistent and with it true and important. And so perhaps they are. But as apologists, it is not our business to defend them. We are defending Christianity, not my religion. When we mention our personal opinions, we must always make quite clear the difference between them and the faith itself. This is a point that I think that we really need to understand. Make sure that when you and I are teaching people, especially outside the church, wherever we are, what we're offering to them is what the Bible says, not our personal opinion. Because my opinion is my opinion. And that's all. So what's the first lesson here that I think we should be able to learn? Leaders, teachers, in and out of church, they ought to know and offer sound, healthy, biblical doctrine. That's our job. We're being here, worshiping God this morning, not just to recharge our batteries, which is a good thing to do, but it's also so that we can be able to talk to others and teach them as well. That's part of our purpose, what we're doing. All right. The second part of what Titus is given to do is to silence corrupt leadership. It seems that the churches in Crete have, over time, allowed uh, some Jewish Christians to let their opinions become too important. That they've allowed the things that are not biblical to have a sway that doesn't, is not necessarily good and they're corrupting others. Paul is very adamant that this is a bad thing and it needs to be stopped. I love how he says this. What does he say? They need to be silenced. And the word there is an interesting word. Um, when Paul talks about silencing people who are teaching poorly, he means bridle them, put a bridle on them, control them. He also means have their mouths stopped, put a gag on them. Okay? They shouldn't be teaching. They need to be stopped. And then he talks about how they're just bad people all around. They are um, they're corrupting people left and right. And then he pulls out this interesting kind of a side note. He pulls out this bit of a poem uh, from one of their own poets, a Cretan poet. And the Line is, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, characterizing Cretans, and by implication, those Christian 
members of the church who are teaching the wrong things. Well, as a sidelight, just so you know, uh, the, the line that he's quoting comes from a poem called Credica. Credica was written by a guy named Epim... Oh, I'm going to say it wrong. I know I am. Epimendes. Epimenides. Sorry. Epimenides. It's the same poem that Paul uses in Acts 17 when he talks in the Areopagus. Paul is using their own people against them, and they know it, and they don't like it. So, what's the next lesson here that we should think about and learn? If you are a Christian, your words and your actions should align. That's the problem that these guys are having. They're teaching one thing, but they're creating chaos. Their actions are not resulting in sound doctrine being taught and lives being changed in a wonderful way. Doesn't work that way. Chapter 2. Paul goes on. And he does this really odd thing, I think, in some ways. He talks specifically about the households in the church. And then he talks specifically about bond servants or people who are serving uh, under masters. Now, the details here are interesting. They may not hold for us. We don't necessarily live back in that time or live under those conditions or live under Roman law. We don't necessarily have those things that are going on as direct correlations. And therefore, when you think about these things, think about them in a very general sense. What we notice are a couple of things. First, he's very specific about who he talks to. Old men, old women, young women, young men. It covers pretty much all responsible people who are adults. And he's basically saying, get your act together, okay? This is what your life should look like. And then I like uh, that he puts it together. They needed the specific instruction. It probably applied very well for them. But in verses 7 and 8, second Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Again, the word sound means healthy, healthy speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The purpose of getting the household in order is to reflect what God wants to have happen. Now this also tells me something else. This may be the big picture, but the reality seems to be that the false teachers, the teachers who were trying to teach these Jewish rules and laws for them to follow, were creating chaos in their homes. They were so disorganized, they could not do the simple disciplined things to keep the families together. And they needed really specific instructions to help do that. And that points 
another lesson. Because people who are so focused on what they think they are supposed to be doing only and now because of me are probably thinking wrong. They're probably thinking like this. It's about me, right? No. Paul is saying to Titus, look, tell them it's not about me or about them, but about who I represent. Verses 7 and 8 remind them that they represent the gospel. They represent Christ. They represent someone other than themselves. And because of that, they need to do some real specific things. And Paul gives them a very specific list. Uh, just a little, kind of a, not a side note, but a point to, to make, uh, make sense of a little bit. We come to this word bondservant. Uh, it's, the, it's the ESV translation. Some will say servant. A couple others will say uh, slaves. Uh, the word there, doulos, is a word that is used uh, in context only. So Paul uses the same word when he describes himself. He calls himself a servant of Christ. It's the same word. But the context says that that's what he is. He's a, he's a servant. In this context, in chapter 2, bond servant conveys the idea that under Roman law, you could put yourself in servitude to somebody, maybe because you owed them money. And then you would have a seven-year term that you would serve for this person. At the end of that term, you were declared free. You would also get the wages you were owed. This is something you did to yourself, okay? And what Paul is saying here is that these people who have put themselves into this servant position, this slave position, should not be acting out. They shouldn't be stealing from their employers. They should be respectful. They should recognize that they are still Christians because these bond servants are Christians in this situation. <clears throat> and the last part of chapter 2 talks very specifically about why he delineates the households and the bond servants. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Spelling is bad there. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul wants to make sure they understand why they're doing what they're doing, what the purpose of it is. And it's very, very specific. I like another thing that uh, we're going to look at C.S. Lewis again, uh, commenting on this passage. He wrote this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world 
were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversions, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there's something wrong with you. You are only likely to get health provided you want other things more. Food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. That's not a sentiment that's new. Paul talks about the race, right? Look ahead to the race. Look ahead to Jesus. That's what he talks about. And then Timothy, Timothy, uh, and then Titus is told to speak these things out with authority. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, the song says. God's grace is for us all. All right. So what are we supposed to learn from that? God's grace is our foundation. Remember that you are redeemed. Remember that you have been bought at a price. And you should respond as though you, that's the truth. Final chapter, real quick. Final chapter. Paul then takes a step back. And in this final chapter, he looks at the result of what should happen if all these things are in place. He describes how our collective actions, Christians in general, of course, should be, how we should act and respond in the culture we live in. And then he reminds them to pay attention to where we came from. And if you were to read this in the original uh, language, in the original text, you could identify this next section, verses four through seven, as poetry. It's not poetry as you and I know it, but it is poetry. And so I set it aside that way. So Paul tells Titus, listen, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of his mercy, through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, since we have been justified by his grace, we become heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life. The confident expectation of eternal life. Paul's strategy here is to let people know what they should look like in the place that they're living, and then tell them why, and this is why. 
Last thing. And chapter 3 makes this point. Be wise about how we participate in our culture. We need to participate in our culture because that is how the gospel is seen. That is how the gospel is seen. If we spend all of our time in our building, in our holy huddles, we're being ineffective. We're not spreading the word. And then Paul finishes up his message with just a couple of uh, thoughts. He wants uh, to send a couple people to Titus to help him out, and then he wants Titus to send a couple people back. Fair exchange. And then he says, uh, by the way, the church there in Crete needs to supply those people that are coming back to him well to take the opportunity to give so that they can do well. So what's the big takeaway from this letter? What are some kind of general things? I mean, these five points are good and they're, they're interesting, but I just want to make it simpler even if I can. We're living in harrowing times. We don't know what's going to happen next. We seem to live in a time of what is going to happen next and how do we deal with it. We are to be as a congregation, an agent of transformation for our community. God has planted us here with that purpose in mind. We are not to spend our time in the holy huddle, but we are to talk and be with other people and let them see us as we are and as we respond as Christians. We should be the ones that help that transformation take place. God works through us to do that. But in order to do that, we need to be devoted to Jesus and remember that what we seek out is the common good, not my good, not the good we think we need, but the good that's going to help the most people. I think Paul really is trying to tell Titus that the power of the gospel needs to play out in public. If it doesn't, there are problems that are going to show up. If we keep everything to ourselves, in ourselves, of ourselves, we do not reflect the gospel message that Matthew 28 tells us we ought to be spreading. And no matter what else happens, no matter how harrowing the times are, no matter how difficult they are, God's grace is what should drive every decision we make. The values that we have, how we interact with people, the way that we love, the way that we rebuke at times, needs to have as a basis God, his son Jesus. Christianity is very compelling when it lives in our culture. It should be there. It should in some ways be similar. But the difference should be that our value system should show up in the way we do things and the choices we make. There should be a point at which someone says, why did you choose to do that? 
And you should be able to say, because God told me that this is a better way to go. Because I believe in Jesus and his word is true. And because I am redeemed. Paul's letter to Titus is about how our lives should and could reflect the Savior who loves us. That means for some of us, when we're in pandemic times, and I said it out loud, that means that when our public forum is now Facebook, you need to make sure that what you're saying reflects God, reflects the value of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't, don't say it. We should be people that, we can, that can be looked at and say, people will say, you have a good, strong faith. Your life reflects something that I'm interested in. Paul, uh, being a good Jew, uh, had a very strong Jewish ethic. And one of the things that the Jews to this day find very important is not only that they know Torah, that Torah become part of them and their lives, but every single day they are to do a mitzvah in other words, that the Torah that they learn, that they know in their heads, that they have in their hearts and their minds, is to be reflected in what they do. A mitzvah is a good deed. And they are people who want to do a mitzvah every day. I think that's not a bad goal. Not a bad goal for me. Not a bad goal for you. Our faith, the thing that we believe in, needs to be seen, needs to be visible, needs to be part of who we are in a real way. Dylan, I know you're out there somewhere, but I need you to come up here because we're going to sing a song. I hope that uh, this coming year is a good year for you. I was going to say 1922, but I don't think that's accurate. I hope that 2022 is a good year for you. I hope that uh, the things that you do involve digging deep into your faith, asking questions, and being okay with not having all the answers because oftentimes we don't. If you have needs, if you have prayer needs right now, if you have uh, other concerns, if you have things going on that we should know about and you want us to know about, I would encourage you and welcome you to come forward as we stand and sing uh, the song that Dylan has selected for us.